I'm really, really um, excited that you made the Visionary Hall of Fame. Like that's it. I don't know if it still feels like anything to you. Like I'm on my third time and sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But like it's I, I get more excited for other people than I do for myself, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, it's exciting. It's you know, it's it's interesting because the first year that I got named as Zen Master, now Visionary, like um, Amanda Boyle, who was there at the time, called me from Tableau. And I literally was like in tears, right? It was that special, right? And you, you've probably experienced that because at that moment, and that was way back in whatever, 2018, I guess, um, it was it was validation to some degree. It was being seen in a, in a pool filled with a lot of, there's a lot of talented people. There's a lot of people with voices. And so there was this kind of feeling of, wow, I'm being recognized by something I believe in so much. For me with with Tableau, it's always been about the core mission of helping people to see and understand data. Like that's the reason I <laughs> associate myself with it. So the first year was really special. Um, the second year was similar. I think I busted myself. I worked really hard in, in the second year and felt like, hey, I wanna retain this, it means something. Um, and then, you know, I think fair to say maybe in the the pandemic years, it was a little bit different, but it, it still always means something at this point. Uh, the the thing I say is usually like, I don't have to work anymore. I don't have to try anymore, right? <laughs> like it's done, right? Like, no, I don't have to hit any more home runs. They've already been hit. Not that I felt like I hit a lot of home runs in my life, but it feels much more um, like about legacy, but it is sort of like a recognition all over again, right? Um, and it's a big thing. It's a big thing for anyone to say that a company um, that, again, like I said, their mission, I support and what the tool does, I find to be revolutionary and impactful to us as humans um, to say, we we value your voice and you have contributed an amount that means we want to have this in perpetuity. So um it doesn't change the recognition or the feeling doesn't change. It's as special now. I think I can tell you, I've done a lot of personal work over the years. And so um, I definitely don't feel like empty about it, which is nice, right? Like you always worry that, you know, you're like, what well, if I climb to the top of Everest, is it done? Like, am I, did I just do it? I'm like, well, there's the thing, but it, I don't feel that way. So it's, it's, it's really nice. It does make me feel old though, which is, which is humbling. I love, I love aging. I don't know if you love aging, but me being in my deep thirties now, I, absolutely love every additional year I get. And so I'm thankful for the wisdom that I guess I've, I've accumulated over time. So I'm, I'm 41 and I'm, you know, I guess I'm in the middle of what you'd call a midlife crisis. And the fact that I've had three electric vehicle accidents in a single year. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, I got, I got rid of the more dangerous one and chose something more, uh, more stable. And then all it took was like park sludge to take me out. Mm -hmm. So that I still crashed on that. Uh, so, so that's my experience with, uh, with that. I mean, with aging, like I, I sort of, I don't, you don't see aging over time, right? It just sort of happens. Like you look in the mirror, you're like I look different, you know? Um, but you also, you're developing, you know, more general, like at work, you're more professional and more seasoned and have been in similar situations. And with other aspects of your life, stuff doesn't seem like a, such a big deal as it might've before or your priorities shift and that kind of thing. Um, I know for me, like talking about, you know, sort of how does it feel when stuff happens? I think um, I've had to change a lot of how I think about stuff. Um, so like learning how to accept a compliment, 
Um, mm. because I grew up in a household where it's like, you're supposed to be really humble. Like we're supposed to be humble. Like nothing's ever a big deal. Like we didn't really celebrate much of anything. So like when stuff happens, like I still have a hard time, like enjoying it. But more importantly, if someone else tells me, Hey, this thing really, uh, I like what you said, or this inspired me or congratulations, like not diminishing that and sort of taking that away from them but learning how to say like, thank you and properly like respecting them, like not telling them that their opinion or feeling is invalid because of how I feel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably grew up similarly. I, I would say, honestly, it's maybe even a little bit more difficult being a woman. Um, I'm reading a lot of books right now. And I think it's very fair to say that um, there's a fine line between women being overconfident and assertive that can go uh, a negative way. So even um, I'm very cautious, I guess, to even, you know, toot my own horn, talk about my own achievements because of that. But I think you you hit it right. And I guess if you talk about where the impact is and what it means to me personally, it's in what it's in those things that you've said. I mean, I had a, a conversation with someone literally last Thursday, just a random call. And he's like, your book, Tableau Strategies, has changed my life. And he's like, I, it's my Bible. And I'm like, well, that's a thing to say, right? Like it's a thing to say. And I'm like, thank you for saying, you know, that that's when it really gets you. And I have a, uh, one of my, my partner's cousin, I gave him a free copy of my book and, and he's not in, in the data industry at all. He, he's a news producer. And, uh, he texted me out of the blue, just, he started texting me pictures of like Tableau maps and he's just like, I'm doing it. And then he texted me, he's like, I'm on the tab pie section. I'm like, what are you doing? It's that kind of stuff that is, that's the stuff of God's, right? That is, that's what I'm living for in the universe. Not that I'm in, in search of that, in need of that, but that connection, that impact, whether it's one person or an army of people is, is where I think the magic happens. I think so too. I think that's why, um, sort of like whatever kind of community you have or fellowship with other people, like that's really important. And like foundational as a human being, like it's really difficult to sort of just as an individual unit, sort of not only reach your potential, but like reach your potential as a person, you know, it's, we see, you know, positive and negative things modeled in others. And by spending time with them and sort of picking up the, the good and recognizing the bad only then are we able to move forward. And we do that professionally too. And it's, I don't know. It's one of those things where like, I think about um, like my dad uh, never liked me spending money. So like yes. if I bought DVDs or something, he would like get on to me. And it's like, I remember like when I was first out on my own, I was like, well, I want to buy a DVD. I'm going to go buy a DVD. And it's like, it was sort of like a, I'll show you old man, but that's also not like a maturity mindset. The maturity mindset is to synthesize the experience from before, like think about what I actually care about and then make my own decision, not just make a converse decision in the opposite direct. Like we've seen so many people in our lives do that. They experience something positive or negative and then say, well, usually negative. Well, I'm going to do the opposite. And the opposite isn't necessarily right either. It's just finding, you know, making sure you're not reacting from a place of, you know, a trauma or, you know, pushing back or proving someone wrong or what have you, you know? Yeah. But I mean, what you're talking about, I agree with you, what you're talking about, though, like the 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 path through that is sort of forging your own path, which is really scary and comes with some risk that, that can be mitigated sometimes, but sometimes not. And sometimes it's a little bit easier. I mean, it's very difficult to go into the dark or have a an idea and try to see it through without 
um, any sort of like feedback. And I think uh, that's part of just who we are as social beings to some degree. It's a lot easier to be like, I'm not going to do that instead of being like, wait a minute, let me stop, think about what I actually want to do and move forward. I mean, that's that's where I'm at in my career right now. I know you and I were kind of um, talking about this beforehand, but I'm kind of in a moment in my career where I'm sort of doing a, I don't want to say a reassessment, but sort of an adjustment of what the next thing, the next phase looks like, where that is. And for me in particular, from a professional standpoint, um, it's not charted. There's no one I can emulate. I think a lot of my career, I have emulated people up to a certain point and done kind of some of what you've talked about. But at this point, um, that's it. That's it. It's, it's, it's rewarding. It's scary. It's exhilarating. But that's where I think I'm at. I, I get that. Like, so I'm the last time we saw each other, I was in New York and you were in New York and we were, um, we were at the data school and we went to the the Tableau user group and everything. And it was really cool to like see so many people sort of come together for that, especially since my local tug has been defunct since COVID. Our last tug ever was a total blowout. Like I actually, <clears throat> for context, I wore a leather jacket the other day because um, Vince Balmel was passing through town. I'm like, oh, I want to wear this jacket. I forgot about this in the back of my clothes. I threw it on and uh, we went to get like bougie snow cones or whatever. And my youngest daughter was there with me and she found this ticket on the ground and pulls it out. And it's like to Graceland. It's this Elvis ticket. And I'm, I'm like, where did you get this? Like I did, this is just in like a snow cone shop. And I picked it up and I realized the date on it was February 11th, 2020. And I was like, holy cow, this is when Steve Wexler was in town because Steve Wexler and Anna Ford both came in from two different directions to do our tablet user group. The last one we ever had because then COVID hit and like the world shut down. And uh, he got there uh, earlier that day and was like, hey, I'm going to Graceland. You want to come? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and so I had this ticket in my pocket that I didn't realize. And I was thinking about that and thinking about how cool it is, how, you know, we know people all over the country and all over the world and, you know, you get, you get together with them. But, um, you know, I'm in a corporate environment right now and you're sort of in a right now you're are a you know, solo practitioner, almost a duo practitioner, really. Right. So it's like between those things, you know, we're constantly thinking about like the stuff that we've done in the past and the stuff we like about it. But also what now? Like I know for me, I love building stuff and I like making happy clients and all that. But like, I don't want to do that forever. Like I could potentially work another 25 years if I wanted to. I mean, my wife makes a lot more money than me. I could retire earlier um, eventually, not, not now, but we've got dyslexic children. It's very expensive. But but like. I know I don't have to like, you know, go for like a vice president position or whatever, but I'm trying to think of like, what do I care about? Like, I like teaching other people and I'm trying to find opportunities to do that on the side, which I do, but like, what, what's next? And I, I'm, I'm with you there. Like, it's not that I'm unhappy with my job or anything. I love what I do right now. And it's not that I'm looking to leave, but it's like, I'm constantly thinking in five years, like what, what is me? Because I'm vastly different now than I was five years ago. Well, I think an interest, like I've had a lot of time. So as you mentioned, I've been home from, I'll say home. So I'm in Arizona. I've been home from New York for, I think, three weeks now. This might be the the three-week day. The moving truck is still on the way. It's somewhere outside of Chicago. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's stuck in the Midwest. I think it's made it past the storm. So I'm still sort of resettling in, but I've had a lot of free time, right? I've intentionally not buried myself in any sort of work other than literally cleaning my garage and cleaning my pantry, neglecting all of the day-to-day -day living that that I did by being so 
let's say immersed, just in, being consumed in a good way, right? With yeah. with my work. And one thing I've sort of thought about, and and I think I've always been this person, and I wonder if this is true for you, is I've always been sort of on the forefront of technology and how technology can work in favor of, you know, this is where I'm like the human species, where us as just a collective entity. And um, I don't think that changes. I think at this point, we've chosen a tool, a software, a route, a, a, a practice, right? So data visualization, the idea of simplifying all the data we're collecting so that other people can understand it, use it, whatever, all the things we talk about. But I think there's more to it than that. If you kind of abstract away from just data and think about it as, you know, I'm going to use technical evangelism. So a lot of my thoughts have been around, well, AI is actually real now, right? Like ChatGPT is actually a legitimate piece of AI technology that could do something, right? Um, Dolly 2 is, is, is there too, you know, NFTs, cryptocurrency, whatever, that's interesting, a bit weird to some degree. You know, it's, it's not weird. It's hard to understand. But my when I think about what's next and how our careers potentially could evolve, it's, well, we're always on the forefront of that adoption curve, right? Of that innovation curve. We're those early adopters. So what is that next technology that will continue to do those things? And I think We've been narrowed in on how data can impact business, but there's so many other things. I mean, one thing I think you and I can both agree on is there's a lot of technical speak and what we're doing, the things you're talking about that you love when you're teaching, when you're sharing things is explaining something to someone so they can understand. It's the same as my mom calling me 15 years ago, 10 years ago, being like, the internet's down. How do I fix the router, right? Like that doesn't change. That's who we are. I think the the vessel, the mechanism as to what we do with that might change. I still think that in terms of the profession we're in, it's quite immature, personally speaking. But I think there are other areas that could help and and be in the same, same um, direction. I, I totally agree. I think... I think there's a lot of disruption that's happening, not even coming, but is is beginning mm -hmm. um, with the early phases of AI. Like we're seeing the potential, we're also seeing cracks already, but that's okay. Like all new technologies are like that. So for example, Microsoft Bing has a flavor of chat GPT that they're using. And I don't know if you've seen the articles on it, but they've actually had to restrict the number of interactions you can have back and forth because unlike like vanilla chat GPT, this is hooked up to the internet. So it's much less stable. So there was an AP reporter who posted an article about the interactions they were having with it. And uh, it corrected them saying it needs to be more polite to them and gave them a list of ways to do that. It said that they had lied about it, you know, the, the AI previously in its articles eventually went on to compare the reporter to Hitler and accuse them of committing murder in the mid nineties. So, so uh, the Bing version is less stable and it's, it's an example. Like, okay. So look, there's cracks here. It's like, we're not dealing with digital gods. This is software, just like so many other things. It's not a profit. It's, you know, right now, the closest thing we probably have that we can comprehend that it's like, is like a search engine. Just think of it as like a really cool search engine. So what could we be using this for right now? And then those people that are going to be the billionaires are thinking, what can we use this for in the future? And also it's kind of terrifying that this will drive cars. <laughs> it, it, is, it is, you know, I it is terrifying some of the things that it could be possible for, but I always think about, 
you know, this is, you know, the, the constant thing that's probably been top of mind in both of our careers as well is that technology will replace human workers, right? The, the workforce will change, but that's actually not true. If anything, the humans are going to have to be more intelligent and, and more diligent in, in more specialized fields. I mean, even if you look at like you look at our profession, right? When I got into it, it was putting bar charts in a single dashboard. Now to be a master of your domain, you have to know cloud computing. You have to, in, in some practices, design a semantic layer to work with data, right? These are additional jobs and roles and responsibilities. And I think that's where we, I, I love, I would love for us to, to, to come to grips with uh, computer assisted, right? Like you think about like, I saw something on the Today Show about they're using, you know, uh, tech-assisted um, tools for lung cancer biopsies, right? That's where we kind of more need to get with a lot of these things and and work, I think, in in parallel and in tandem with it. Um, but it's exciting. I mean, it's exciting. Yes, it's it's kind of scary to be like, well, you know, you've you've crashed an electric car three times, right? The the news is beautiful. There was something on my my news that was like, hey, a Tesla caught fire twice the other day because the battery, you know, like yeah. I hate I hate when people dig on technology because truthfully it's just I I'm fascinated by it and I think it in the in the aggregate it's quite useful. Um I mean I think it's gonna be um exciting times like i'm a big star trek fan and so this idea like you know some of those roles on the the starship are actually real now like you could actually go be you know like a a technical evangelist or you could be an ai engineer right whereas before it just sounded like gobbledygook like it sounded like silly right like no one's going to be a star cartographer you know they are but um a lot of that's becoming a lot more practical i think that's cool and uh, one of the things i've always appreciated about star trek even though i'm well, I'm entirely skeptical of it is Star Trek is at least in the earlier versions, not the current versions. It was a very utopian vision where people are doing this because they felt like it's the right thing to do versus, you know, it's a it's not like a profit driven like we're going yeah. on to space. It's a hey, this is the the sense of human spirit and discovery. And, you know, we're going to go out there and see what there is to see. And like I've always thought that that was one of the cool uh, uplifting things about Star Trek. But, yeah, you're you're right. Like we we fear job replacement and we see that right now in you know we see that in like grocery stores for example where they figured out that they could do the self checkout and they could replace like four grocery store clerks with one but on the other hand then they start things like the sort of order ahead and then they need people to go work that job it's like eventually that might be replaced with the robot and then it'll be another job that someone else needs you might be able to replace basic BI functionality with AIs, but you're still going to need people to help craft these semantic layers. You're going to need people to say, does this thing actually make sense? Because I think a lot of us have seen some of the mid-journey generated dashboards where people say, make me a dashboard. And it's, you know, it puts like a shipping, you know, like a boat in the middle of it and all these gauges and people look at it. Like, this looks cool because it looks like what we see in movies. But then if you like actually start to look at it, you're like, none of this actually makes any sense at all. And it's, it's the humans providing feedback loops that make machines better versus machines just knowing how to improve automatically. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I saw this on some other video recently that was or a statement that was like the 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 expert of the 21st century, or whatever, the modern expert is a curator of knowledge, right? If you think about it, we all have access to the internet, right? I can look up anything on this computer. Whether it's useful or not is another question. Chat GPT is somewhat demonstrating how we can kind of course through that. 
but your knowledge and ability to curate the right information for the right situation is never going to be, it's going to be long time before that's replaced by some, by, by a piece of technology, by a computer. It, it just is. I mean, if it weren't, we, we, our profession would already be obsolete, but, it, but that's absolutely not true. So I think that, that, that that's also something I think about as well as like, well, if that's, if that's what the key differentiator is, then you should, you better explain to people that you are a curator of knowledge and that you're a curator of human connections, right? That that is the distinguishing factor because now it's no longer enough to just be competent in whatever the tool is. You really need to elevate yourself and, and d demonstrate that that is, is the distinction. But it, again, it's it's all promising. You know how much I would have loved to order pizza on my phone when I was in high school or work at Target and my job is to take bags to people's cars? Like that sounds like elevating our entire society. Now, I know it's not equitable across the world, but eventually it could be. I mean, honestly, if we go back to the utopian world of Star Trek where conflict doesn't really exist anymore and we we kind of come to grips with actually values are really all that matter and it's all about ethics and integrity and and more is more and better is better right like a, a universe of 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 we're here and this is what it is this is living um but i'm 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 optimistic that that might happen maybe maybe not in our lifetime but maybe <laughs> you know i'm optimistic in general and i think uh Wexler put me on to Hans Rosling like when he was in town, like I was discussing before. And it's fortunate that I had just bought Factfulness right before COVID hit. And I remember being, uh, you know, being locked down. The first couple of weeks were absolutely abysmal. And in addition to the fact that we didn't know what was really going on in the world. And you're like, are we all going to die? Like, all I know is I've been sent home and I'm not allowed to go anywhere. Um, but, you know, also like my work was going crazy while we're working remotely in sort of a mishmash situation. But as sort of things started to sort of level out and there was like a period where we had established, you know, the new normal phase we all talked about. I remember I was sitting in my backyard uh, reading, uh, reading um, factfulness and just uh, going through this book about, you know, here are the actual numbers and the actual facts of what the world really looks like, because we all have a lot of impressions, you know, from, books, TV, news, what have you about what's the rest of the world like? And especially living in sort of the Western world, we're pretty wealthy and we have a lot of preconceptions. We assume that, uh, you know, everyone else is uh, living in absolute desolation and that they're all miserable and that, uh, you know, we're going to save everyone. But uh, it's really hard to know what anyone's actual problems are and how to help them if you don't actually have the facts. And reading that book, even in the midst of a pandemic where we're all freaked out, we don't know what's going on, just understanding that the world has been improving so much and so quickly and people's lives are being changed. And honestly, to get that change going doesn't even take that much. So like if each of us just did a little bit for a couple people, that does a whole, I mean, like it does a whole lot. Like uh, this past semester, um, Jared Flores and I, who's now a new visionary, congratulations, Jared. Um, he and I were both teaching with a program called Women in Technology at Emory University. And um, the program is based around, it was originally going to be like a cybersecurity style setup where you're teaching, taking like single mothers that they're trying to help elevate out of poverty and teaching them cybersecurity. And eventually they expanded it. They're teaching them like SQL and Tableau and all sorts of stuff. So they wanted some Tableau guys and we they gave us the curriculum we needed to cover. So you need to cover all these topics. You figure out how to do it. You have this many sessions and hours. And we're like, oh boy, you know. So it was a crash course in teaching, but also teaching from the very foundational beginning. 
and understanding like I need to get them excited about the why in addition to the how at the same time. And it was really cool, not just because it was a uh, teaching, which is something I've always been interested in, but because like, this is one of those things where it's a small group there. It's not huge. It's probably about 14 ladies, but like this can fundamentally like help break like chains of like cyclical poverty. Like, because for them, it's like, if they have a skill where they can go work and make a good living and their kids see them going and working and make a good living, they can say, Oh, well, I can do this also. Like I can also, you know, get a skill and go work and, you know, take care of my family. And it's, uh, it was just really good. I'm not saying like I'm saving the world or anything. It's just like, it doesn't take too much, I think, to help others. Yeah. I mean, the, the core of it is to some degree, knowledge is power, right? Like it's knowledge gives you the power of choice. It gives you the power of knowing, like, even if you don't, you know, whatever, what you both did, uh, for, for those 14 women is, impactful even if they don't go into that profession they know it's out there they can speak to someone else about it like that ripple effect is huge and you've opened a window for an underserved community for some reason i'm like deep into quotes right now like there's a um, beautiful mini series reese witherspoon and carrie washington little fires everywhere which is about two mothers and they have different adventures and there's a famous line i like to think about from Kerry Washington, because she's a black single mother. Reese Witherspoon is the epitome of, you know, upper middle class. Right. And she says to Reese in like a moment of aspiration of, of, of um, exasperation, like you had better choices to choose from. Like Reese is like, I made good choices. You did it. And Carrie's just like, you had the option of better choices. And it's absolutely true. It, that's the kind of stuff that gives me goosebumps like on my scalp right now talking about because we are so fortunate due to a lot of circumstances that are outside of our control and we're born into it. But you are helping, all of these things are helping other people in those sort of situations to 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 have those better choices and options. And I mean, as I see stuff like that and I see stuff like, you know, con- like the data school or consultancies and stuff like that, places where you know, training is available to really sort of fundamentally shift people's careers. I, I really start to think more about sort of how we've classically thought about education. You know, we've we have the setup where you you complete your primary education and then you go to college and then you probably still have to go to grad school and then you get a job and then you're paying for all that for the rest of your life. And um, it's become a diminishing return over time. Like the prospects aren't it used to be. You graduated high school, you got a job. Then it would be you graduated to college, you get a job. Now it's you graduate grad school and you get a job. It's diminishing returns, not only in terms of the amount of education you're required to have, it just in order to get an entry-level job, right? But also the amount of money you're spending because they all become increasingly more expensive. In part, you know, there, there's so many reasons we can go into why that's the case, but it's like, I see stuff like that. And it's like, if you were in high school and you saw like, I don't know what you or I do, like, and said, that looks cool. Could I take a, you know, high school senior and in six months teach them how to do like 80% of it? I think I could. And I think we could do it for a lot less. And I just think like, what can we do to really disrupt some of this and just, you know, not force people to continue on the same path that we've always done just because that's how we've done it. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I, you know, I, 
am fortunate to have, I have a bachelor's in math, right? I have a beautiful STEM education that opens any door that I want to get into. I also have an MBA that I got paid for by a corporate company that I worked for while I was there. You know, I will tell you, I got bored. So I got an MBA, which again, sounds a bit sassy, but it's true, right? Like I was afforded that luxury. And then to your point, I went and worked at the data school where none of that was important. And it was, can we just have time on the clock? And can we get to some version of expertise in there? And the answer is yes. I personally think that um, academia is, has its merits. Uh, academia is the same as sort of like the scientific method, right? It's the way you put together a trifold science experiment for whatever, biology, and you go through that process. You need to know it and it needs to exist. But in the real world, right, in the day-to-day -day of things, it's so much more blurred. I mean, you think about the mathematics that we do, and at best, I'm like, this is murky, right? We're using math to figure out some signals to why something happened. And truly, you know, sales could be up because someone's double scanning things, right? Like, who knows, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Um, but I think that fundamentally our education system needs to change. I think it's working on changing. There's a lot of large forces at work to do that. Paths of certification, paths of, of non-traditional academia. But academia is a big, big engine, right? It's a big behemoth to get around. And society, and we're responsible for this, has propagated that belief that your value is increased if you acquire that. It, it doesn't say a lot for real world skills, I guess I would say, um, having gone through it. Am I thankful? Does it open more doors? Absolutely. Did I learn how to do what I do now um, in, in college, in high school? No. I mean, actually in high school more than in college, because in high school, I took a an introduction to um, desktop uh, publishing, which was basically Photoshop and Adobe. Um, I don't even know what it was. Adobe. It wasn't Adobe Illustrator, but and I was the I was the graphic editor. I was the layout editor of my senior yearbook. That's more similar to the skills I use now. Like I won a competition designing a menu in like Microsoft Word. That's more equivalent and useful for experience than. And I love that than Calculus 3 was, than learning how to integrate in three dimensions. Now, I can integrate in three dimensions for the rest of my life, but that doesn't do anything for improvement in the, in, in the, in the aggregate. I think that's really true. I, I have learned so many skills since I actually finished my education. Like I went straight from uh, bachelor's to master's degree, finished that, then started my career at the, the rock bottom. Um, so I've been working my way up from there ever since. Um, but yeah, it's... I so many of the skills I've learned have been out of my own curiosity to want to know, or that, or like, that looks really cool. Or that looks fun. And even so many of the things that I make, like people look at my tableau publics or whatever, it's like, they're like, your stuff just feels different. Like, I don't know why. And I'm like, I think it's because I'm not inspired by data viz. Like I don't go and look at other vizes and like, that's my inspiration. Like a lot of my stuff comes from like comic books and magazines and like all the other stuff I've been exposed to. And I'm just wanting to express an idea in a way that I think is interesting to me or might be interesting to someone that's not us. Yeah. Like so much of what I make is, and this might be kind of silly, but like I'm, I consider my, my data viz stuff that my public work, almost evangelical data viz, because I'm not making stuff for us. Like I'm not going deep with you know, filter actions and tool tips and, you know, vision tooltip and all that stuff. It's like, I generally make stuff that's flat 
and usually just one or two charts because I want like my mom to be able to understand it. If it's about movies, I want like a movie fan to look at it and instantly know what I'm talking about instead of something that's sort of more um, preaching to the choir, you know? Yeah, I, I totally get that. I mean, what we do is a is a form of communication. Like I firmly believe that, right? And and what you're describing is sort of poetry. Let's let's say let's say that it's poetry with data to to a large degree. There's some artistry to it, and we need that type of poetry and innovation to progress and to get better. Like yes, will it mostly be bar charts because bar charts are easy to read and understand? Sure. But are there other things? Are there other subject areas? Are there other representations? Are there things that we haven't tried yet? Absolutely. I mean, the bar chart was invented, you know, 200 years ago or something. Not, not even, right? Like you think about everything that's out there and we're sort of at the at the, at the beginning stages of what, um, what it is. And so I firmly believe it is just a, it is a form of communication that I think we have unearthed and discovered a little bit earlier than others. It's like, it's like emojis, right? No one was using emo. I was using emojis 10 years ago, right? The lame ones on, you know, AOL, right? Like I was using what I had at my disposal, but if you think about where we're going, I guarantee that most conversations between individuals are littered with emojis and videos and pictures. They're so immersive and multidimensional. And I think that what we do falls in line with that. I think it does. Do you remember back? It used to be emoticons before emojis. Like mm. actually there was a pre emoji. It's like paleolithic man that was like wiped out. It's like, that's, that's what the emoticon was. They just, they just couldn't hack it against emojis. But I think it's interesting that, you know, bringing up the idea of emojis, like humans have throughout history used visual imagery in conjunction with language to communicate ideas. And what are emojis, if not that? We're able to influence the tone of what we're saying with a tiny little picture that we tag at the beginning or end. Because Lord knows communicating through text exclusively, it can be very difficult to convey the exact tone you're saying. And it's really easy to get your wires crossed. But if you put the laughing with tears at the end of something, people are like, okay, they're joking. They're not really coming down on me or what have you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating. It's nice. It actually makes, I think, communication through technical means a lot more palatable. It's still not the same as face-to-face -face because of just how how... Yeah, again, how multifaceted looking at a person is, you're seeing everything associated with it, but it's getting closer. It's a closer amalgamation. And um, the other thing, exciting thing to talk about, I mean, let's be real here, Universal Translator. I'm going back to Star Trek now, Zach, but think about it. Not that I do it very often, but you can tap on a text message. I can in my iPhone and get it translated into yeah. any language. Someone could text me in Chinese and I could perfectly communicate back to them or at least get close enough to bridge that gap. I think that that is really helpful. And, and you talk about the globalization and, and, and reaching that those kind, and that's technology again, hmm. uh, back helping us are going to really allow us to evolve further, um, along the way. I mean, that's a great point. Like think of the fraction of data stuff that we would like to know that we are limited to by being primarily English speakers. We can only realistically know so many languages, right? It's like, we could do better, but we're not going to know 40 languages. You know, I think of when I see like the data saber group in Japan and I see the stuff that they're publishing. And while I can translate their tweets to see what they're talking about, if I'm looking at one of their visualizations, unless they did in English, 
I'm merely admiring the structure of it. I don't really know what's being said and I'm missing out there and they're probably way better at English than I am in Japanese. So they're probably better on that front, but it's think about this, the breadth of knowledge across the world that we could all know if we spoke more languages and having translations like, you know, the babble fish and hitchhiker's guide. That's right. I'm bringing my geeky stuff into this. Um, Having something like that, where we're able to interrupt the fact that, you know, you and I were born in different places, so we don't speak the same language can really lift up, you know, all, all ships. That's one of my big things. Like I think when I first started getting involved in the tablet community and you were actually the first person I, I knew, like I, I discovered you first because I didn't, I wasn't really involved in Twitter in any way. And I was at uh, like TC 17 or something. And they had like the big screens that were showing all the different tweets people were putting up. And I think you were one of the people that popped up there. I'm like, okay, I'll remember that name. And I think you were the one of the first people I followed. So um, coming in to the data fam and all that, um, there's not really like a clear entry point. You know, there is no like orientation guide, especially since it just kind of, kind of amorphous and exists online. So I had done like my first project for fun and I had just discovered Tableau Public and I saw you tweeting like hashtag makeover Monday and posting a project you're doing. I'm like, oh, cool. This is what people do. So I like posted my thing with hashtag maker money because I had no idea what was going on. And now like, you know, when people find new people, they try to steer them, you know, to, oh, you know, you'll want to go check out this or that. And I think it, that's really awesome that people are getting better at that. But going back to all that, one of the things I really appreciate about this community is that it's not a zero sum game. Like no one is holding back an idea because they're worried someone else will do it better or that they won't get credit for coming up with that idea. Like uh, people share their stuff really willingly and just knowing that a rising tide lifts all ships, like for me to win, I don't need you to lose. Like we can both win and both get better, both get smarter and both, you know, there's, you know, there's plenty of success to go around. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. What 100% just in my core, that's how I feel. That's what I, you know, more is more, better is better, right? it all is in the same vein of just improvement, right? Uh, Across the board. Um, I think social media somewhat hurts how we communicate all that, but that's, you know, that's completely separate. But it's absolutely true that um, there is a forum for innovation and there is a forum to exchange ideas. And that's huge. I mean, um, it's huge to be able to connect with people in that way. I mean, uh, you know, you think about the the rare population that you and I are in, right? So there's there's 50 visionaries, there's 16 now Hall of Fame people. That means there's 66 people in the world, 66 people on this planet that are this, which is only goes to show the recognition reach, but does demonstrate a little bit about um, how critical it is, how much of a small group we are and how um, rebellious and vocal we need to be and that there is space for that amount of vocalization. You know. Once maybe Kim Kardashian starts posting bar charts, our job will be done, right? Like, <laughs> we'll be good, right? Like, as soon as you, everybody, you know, like you said, I, I use my mom as an example as well. As soon as my mom comes back at me and is like, here's this cool bar chart I made, then we're done. But until then, we got a long road to go down. Absolutely. And it's... um. I've- I was just going to, I was working a blog post the other day. I don't write blogs frequently, but when I do, it's usually in response to something that happened or a thought. I, I mean, I guess that's a blog in general. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't write blogs in a cadence like I do podcasts. It's easy to have conversations. It's hard to have ideas that are worth saying. Um, so I was writing a blog because I had had an interaction with a client. The client's like, you know, dashboards are boring. And I, I you know, I, I was sort of, 
digesting this, like, I, I'm not sure how to respond to this. I mean, my initial response is, you don't want my dashboards to be exciting. If like, if it's exciting, you're not even noticing the data. Um, but, you know, more importantly, you want this to be calm so that you can cut straight through to what you need to know. So I, I was thinking so much about sort of whenever we're watching movies or stuff like that, and you see like any sort of like interface, whether it be like it's at the tactical center and they've got all the screens or, you know, um, I think we saw We Crash not too long ago and they had their business dashboard and stuff. And you look at these things and to like civilians, they're like, oh, look at the colors. That's really cool. That's like a circle thing. And, and it's like, we look at them and it's like, this means absolutely nothing. And, you know, trying to be the voice in the wilderness, calling out to people say, don't look at the flash right here. Like, look at what I can actually tell you. And we can try to make stuff look cooler. But most importantly, you need stuff to be clearer because that's why you hired me. Like you hired me to help you understand X, Y, and Z. You didn't hire me to entertain you. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. It's one of the, one of the sort of uh, things I birthed during my time at the data school is this idea of three different types of feedback in, in dashboards and there are three A's. Um, one is accuracy, one is analytics, and the other one is aesthetic. And I, as throughout my coaching and teaching, I would always say, I think aesthetic comes last. When people are giving aesthetic feedback, it, it truly means they probably don't understand, right? And we really need to, to, to focus on that at the beginning. I always kind of, accuracy to unpack it is the data accuracy. Am I accurately demonstrating putting this information together on the screen, right? Do we have the right data and are we showing that? Analytics is, have I taken that data and distract, you know, extracted value out of it, right? Can you make a decision? Can you learn something from it? The whole idea of an insight, whatever, is there facts that you can find or decisions that can come out of that? And then aesthetics is, it's the easiest one to change too, right? But it, it happens to be the one that I think people um, gravitate to towards the most because everything else is unfamiliar. And if they can, they can get to that. So there's some value in that, right? There's value. I mean, we do this with children, right? Vegetables become palatable when we make it fun. So I always think there is some space and, and it's nice to have a balance between, you know, here's the rigidity of, of what works, right? Here are the best practices. Here is how we do it right, but not negating. And you, you mentioned this, like, not negating that we can have a little bit of fun, we can be playful with it, we can try new things um, in pursuit of of adoption, right? So again, I go back to that whole, everybody just hasn't adopted what we're doing yet. And so to some degree, we kind of have to coax it along, you kind of got to put a spoonful of sugar with it, right? You, there's a little bit of whimsy that needs to go in and certainly fun. I think that's probably one of the things that our community does the best is we exude passion. And when you exude passion and true enthusiasm and like general love and admiration for what we're doing, that becomes very contagious, right? That helps with that invitation beyond more than just like a slick, you know, what sunburst chart, right? <laughs> like it, that can help, right? So that's a lot of what I kind of advocate for, I think in my own, um, my own way is just if you can make someone believe how impactful and beautiful this is for you and what it is and how what you can see from it and you can uh you know maybe some of that sort of shiny will or glitter will stick to someone else's life what i like to think if you're covered in glitter zach and i stand next to you i'm gonna get a piece of glitter on me right like it's yeah. gonna happen yeah it's uh, i, I use the analogy i had a uh use i had a way back a sunday school teacher who was a secret service agent and he talked about uh because they're also in charge of currency 
and he was talking about counterfeit money and stuff like because he liked to tell stories like that and it always got like the you know the, the teenage boys like really interested so he was talking about this and we're like so how do you know something's counterfeit you know it's like are you checking like the you know the strips like the holograms and he's like it's funny like when they're first teaching us they don't show us any counterfeit money like they just make us handle a whole lot of real cash and then eventually they'll cycle through some counterfeit money and you don't even know why at first, but you're like, this, this isn't right. Like, I don't know what it is. And that's why I sort of emphasize, like, it's so important to like, see other people's work, like to get out, even get outside of your own organization. Like you're like, my organization is big and we've got a lot of really passionate people making really passionate stuff. But even then you should like expand beyond that. Look for examples all over the place of what people are doing and start to, you know, especially if you're earlier in your career, start to understand like what's good and what's not. And also then start to develop the language to explain why is this good or why is it not? You know, someone may already have the words or there, there might not be, or you might have to figure it out. But it's like, I, I've been saying that it's like a two-part thing, but the more I think about it, like you're saying, it's a three-part thing because I've talked about our profession in the, in the past to other people. And I said, well, on one hand, you have to be tool adept in some tool, like whatever it is, right? And I consider this like your, your pencil or your paintbrush. Like yeah. you, you gotta, you gotta know how this thing works. And some people are very good at that. You also have to understand what do I need to make with this? You know, because some people might be very tool adept, but not know what to make to communicate well. And that's the other part, like actually understanding the fundamentals of creating something. And then there's the third part, which I've always described as soft skills, which is knowing how to talk to other people and clients and also help translate what they're talking about or push back or, you know, reassert. So sometimes you'll have someone say, I want something that does this. Like they'll be very direct and say, it's got to look like this. It's got to do this. And even then I'll be like, but why? Like, what's it for? What does it do? What does it tell you? What decision are you going to make if I do this? You know, just ask questions, be curious. And in the process that a lot of times you find out, well, the thing they thought is the thing they need isn't really the thing they need, but they don't have the words for the thing that they need. And that's where our professional skills need to come in. And we get in the middle of the process and help find that middle ground that addresses their need. Yeah, I think, um, speaking for myself, but I think most of the the people that are sort of at the forefront of our profession really have mastered that. I I had a corporate background in process engineering. So like lean six sigma, like Toyota style things, like where it's really, you know, it's engineering, it's manufacturing focus where you can actually figure out where the issue is, the flaws, or you can make it more efficient, et cetera, you know. But a lot of that, if you ever read into that, it's about knowing things very deeply. It's about that five whys. It's about the deep purpose. It's about what really is the root cause of that and being able to to surface that along the way. I think that's why we're still not where I want us to be, obviously, but I think that's why there's sort of this clear distinction between what I would call sort of a traditional business intelligence developer that does exactly what you say. They can work with the tool, they can wield it, they can they can make the thing that you're talking about, but it doesn't deliver, it doesn't have the juice, there's no meat there because it's not providing the value and the the solution, the resolution, the insight, the the fact, whatever we want to call it, there's no depth to it. And, um, you know, speaking for myself in terms of just the data school and how we approach things, which is, to be very fair, I think is a very wise approach and is, is something I, I believe in quite strongly as well, is the majority of time is spent why are we doing this and what is this person actually looking for and how do we actually help them and a huge thing is 
you know, what ingredients do we even have, right? Like, can we even make a cake? Can we do this when we have, you know, we've got a little bit of flour, we've got no, you know what I mean? Like there's no, so that's a huge part about it. And and that goes back to that kind of other piece I talked about is, is in what you said is, is being sort of a curator and knowing what is possible given the limitations of what is there. And also being, but being optimistic and positive about it, we can get to this, then we can get to better by going down this route. This will be our little window. And this is the ray of light to help you on that path. And um, it's not easy to get people to believe that. Um, Again, I think I was very fortunate to be in a position very early in my career where I was in a division that was aimed at making businesses better, but we were by ourselves. So every single person we worked with, every project we did, we had to convince people that they needed it, right? And that's a huge thing to be able to sell and convince people of the value of what we're doing in a very authentic way, not in a, hey, you need this because you're going to, you know, not a flashy sale, a true sale. Yeah, that's an incredibly valid point. Um, So... I know you like games. Yes. So let me ask you, what games are you playing right now? Because I can suggest a couple. One of which you probably know because it was going around the data fam for a while. But Charty Party is a massive hit. I know you you know of this because you previously had it in the data school office. The guys that made it actually live 15 minutes from me. I had no idea they were local and I had them come and speak at my tug previously. But also they have a newer game called Puns of Anarchy which is it comes with a full set of dry erase markers and different expressions on them. And the different players get to cross out or add letters to create puns out of these, uh, these phrases. So some, a couple of game suggestions for, uh, for our gamer, what games are you playing lately? Okay. So I'm both a tabletop slash board gamer and big video gamer. I would say in my youth, I played more video games. And as I've gotten older, I've played more board games. However, right now I am deep in Hogwarts Legacy. So I am about 80 to 100 hours in to my life inside of Hogwarts. Um, so, you know, it's, I, I, people ask me what it's like. I'm like, it's Grand Theft Auto, but in the Wizarding World, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. It's, I've read all the books. They, they came out during my time. I was, uh, I think my grandmother first gave me the, the, one of the books when they were, you know, I think it was like, only two of them were out and my grandmother was reading it in her book club and she's like, you should read this. And, um, and I think, it, you know, so that has been amazing to me just to take a universe and uh, to expand on it and to sort of feel like you're living the Hogwarts experience. Uh, that's, that's top of my list in terms of what I'm sinking time into. Um, in terms of board games, I think I've probably told you this before, but I have some tried and true ones that, that I absolutely love. I'm a fan of a couple flavor of games and a couple um, publishing houses. So I I oscillate on this, but I'll tell you today that I think that my my favorite tabletop game of all time, and it still is, is Terraforming Mars because you play as a corporation against other corporations and the goal is to terraform Mars. Um, the beauty of it is every single card, which is about, I don't know, 500 cards are unique. So there's a lot of interest that comes out of that. But I also like cooperative games not shocking. I'm a very cooperative and collaborative person. And, and um, games that are their, their legacy games where they, they, whatever you do has an impact on the future and you make sort of decisions that impact how the game is played further on down the line. And so that's a huge thing in my, um, my repertoire. I also have a, a 
just got an email to complete my pledge for an updated version of Castles of Burgundy. If you've never played Castles of Burgundy, it's uh, similar in the sense of like, it's kind of like a European gateway board game into a deeper world, right? For anyone who's like, we've played Settlers of Catan. Um, this is another one. It's a hex tile drafting game where you build a nice little um, castle and well, actually multiple castles inside of a, I don't even know what we would call that. I, I guess just like a feel like there's a name for it, but I don't know what I would call it, but in like a nice little grassy area. So um, that's kind of at the forefront of what I've been doing. And then the last one I'll say, because I could talk about this forever, is um, uh, there's a game called Castles of Mad King Ludwig that I really like. It's um, by a publisher. It's Bezier Games. Um, and it's beautiful because you're making a castle for for king ludwig the mad one that made all those beautiful castles in in bavaria now germany right so yeah the disney castles right um and so you you put rooms in a castle to please the king the fun part about it is they came up with a colossal version so the tiles are four times larger so it takes an entire table for one person i have like a video on my instagram of a castle i recently built where you walk in and there's a throne room off to the side and there's a secret passage that leads to an indoor pool. And it's just this massive table uh, that you lay out. And so I love all of those sort of things. I love, I think games in general done well, whether it's tabletop or, or a video game, bring you into a universe and, and you're building towards something that is, is fun, right? Like, and of course, the, the the hope is that the king will love your castle the most, and and you'll win. But the the thrill is is what you put in your castle, right? Uh, nowhere else could I put an indoor pool behind a throne room and and get get the king's likes as a result. <laughs> but I do have Charity Party. I have played. I have Charity Party Family Edition, and the uh, I don't have the original. I don't have the original one. I only have the Family Edition. But um, I also think th things like that are quite valuable. I love the idea of any sort of like flashcards or sort of real aid to something because I think it can help in the learning process and make it fun. I mean, you could take Charity Party Family and at least expose children to bar charts and line charts, right? Under the premise of funny things and histograms. There's histograms in there too. I agree. I think uh, I think video games are highly effective at teaching us a lot. I pointed out to Brittany Ross now, who will be excited to hear all the recommendations for games you just listed. But I was telling her um, a visual cue in games they often use but never explicitly lay out is yellow is an indicator of where to go. Yeah. So um, I sent her a bunch of screenshots from games like Tomb Raider and other things. And whenever there was an area that you were sort of meant to climb to or interact with or whatever, there would be subtle hints of yellow because yellow isn't supernaturally occurring. So it stands out in a lot of environments. And as long as they're subtle with it, you're picking that up as a cue without ever realizing you're doing it. And with us picking up ideas like that, more subtle ways that we can convey stuff as well as the more sort of large, blunt, explicit ways, like the better everyone gets. So uh, before we wrap up, Anne, uh, where can everyone find you if they want to talk to you? And are you going to be at Tableau Conference this year? Definitely going to be at Tableau Conference. Um... I have the benefit, you and I've talked about this, of living in the West. Uh, the drive from where I live to Vegas is under six hours. I think it's five hours now because there's a beautiful bridge um, that goes around the Hoover Dam. 
So I will definitely be at Tableau Conference in Vegas. I quite like going for the the journey and being there. So I will absolutely be there. Where you can find me uh, most likely is on Twitter. So you can follow me. My my at is at and you, my middle initial, Jackson. You can find me on Tableau Public. I also have my own website for my company, jackson2two.com, which is more just a sitting. It's more of like a parked space for now than anything else. Um, but that's probably the main place you can find me. I think Twitter is sort of my gateway into saying what is next. But I'm very eager to go to Tableau Conference. I know you're going to be there as well. I think it's going to be um, exciting. You know, I went last year and it was a bit of like, what is this? This is new and this is different. I think this year, I hope we see a lot more new faces and returning faces. Um, being in this community for so long, it's been nice to see um I'm going to say the attrition, but I'm going to say it in a positive way, the turnover, the new faces and the existing faces, uh, and to see how those those things have evolved. So I'm quite looking forward to that. And being the old timer that I am now, at least in the community, I'm I'm uh, not speaking. I'm sort of looking at being kind of like that cheerleader in the background. Like, I want to see what other people are doing because um, I've had my time. You know, I don't mean that in like any sort of negative way, but there's space for all of us. And um, for me personally, I think it's quite wonderful. And I feel like I've not been engaged enough and connected enough with some of the the change that's been around. So this will be a key opportunity for me to go see that. That's wonderful. And I look forward to seeing you there. And I look forward to seeing all the people that I have met online, but not seen in person before. I know. Yeah. That, that I love the awkward, like, do I know you, you know, do, do, do we know? Yes, we do know each other and kind of getting through that. And then you know, I, I met my partner on the internet, so I'm very familiar and comfortable with meeting people that you have these big relationships with in person. And they always meet with, they always actually exceed expectations to be quite frank, right? Uh, as soon as you can get past that weirdness of like, what are we doing here and get to the truth of actually, we both like the same thing, right? We're both here. We both cared enough to show up. Uh, it gets to, to really good. So I'm always looking, looking forward to that as much as I can being somewhat of the the independent introvert that I am. So in, in, in small pockets, I would say. Amazing. Well, Anne, thank you for coming. Uh, we'll see you in May. And this has been Data Plus Love. 